Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you are doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Brando Skyhorse, author of a new novel called My Name is Iris. So for me, the challenge was like, how can I write something that is representative of my experience? Because for me, the, the, the past few years as a Mexican-American, Trump is relevant. It's about the wall, right? And for me, for the past six to seven years, like hearing that word over and over and over again, it became something different. You know, the idea of like what a wall is, you even say that word now, wall, like it used to be a dead noun. Now it's like the punch of a, of like a, like a, like an advertising slogan. All right. That was Brando Skyhorse, author of a new novel called My Name is Iris, available now from Avid Reader Press. My Name is Iris is a dystopian novel. It is set in the near future in the United States of America. It seems to be happening in the Southwest somewhere, possibly California, possibly Arizona. It is not specified. The novel is about a woman named Iris Prince. Her given name, I should add, is Inez. She is a second-generation Mexican-American who, when we meet her in this story, is going through a period of transition. She is recently divorced. She is moving to a new neighborhood with her nine-year-old daughter. And on the surface, Iris is a person who seems to have arrived in a relatively good place. She's a person who has done everything right. She has all the trappings of a comfortable, middle-class, assimilated existence. But 
all is not well. Strange and ominous things are afoot. For one thing, you know, she's in this new house and a wall appears in her yard. Out of nowhere. I should mention that this book has a supernatural bent to it, even though it is rooted in the real and the ordinary day-to-day. And then along with this wall, the political and social environment in the United States surrounding Iris is growing increasingly grim. In the world of My Name is Iris, a Silicon Valley startup has developed a high-tech wristband. It is called The Band, and it is only available to Americans who can prove parental citizenship. So it serves, in effect, as a surveillance device and a way to weed out people without, quote-unquote, proper citizenship. Which is another way of saying this is very much a contemporary story, a hauntingly plausible story, but also a novel that mixes the dark with the light. It has its moments of levity and humor and deep feeling and humanity. It's quite a book. And I had a great conversation with Brando Skyhorse. That is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get going, I do want to remind you that I do an email newsletter once a week. I would love it if you would subscribe over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. The newsletter is simple. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the podcast, and I share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, go sign up for the newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. Likewise, I would love it if you would join the Other People Patreon community. If you are a regular listener of this show, if you like this content and you want to see it continue into the future, go join the Patreon community for the Other People podcast. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale and you can get stuff, merchandise. So check it out at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right, so my guest once again is Brando Skyhorse. His debut novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, won the Penn Hemingway Award back in 2011. It also won the Sue Kaufman Award for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Brando Skyhorse is also the author of a memoir entitled Take This Man, which was named one of Kirkus Review's best nonfiction books of 2014. He also co-edited an anthology entitled We Wear the Mask, 15 True Stories of Passing in America. Brando Skyhorse teaches English and creative writing at Indiana University in Bloomington. So let's get to today's main event. This is my conversation with Brando Skyhorse and his new novel, One More Time, is called My Name is Iris. Yeah, I mean, most people, when they hear my name, they assume that I'm a hippie or that my parents were hippies, which is also, you know, it's a fair, that's a fair consideration. It's a fair reach. But uh, I was born 
Brando Kelly Uyoa, U-L-L-O-A. That is my birth name. I'm Mexican-American by, by birth. My mom was Mexican-American. We lived in Los Angeles uh, in the 1970s, early 1970s. And there was a lot of political activism that was occurring in the late 60s and early 1970s. I mean, whatever sort of political interest you had, it was all colors of the rainbow, brown berets, black power, you name it. And for whatever reason, my mother grew fascinated with American Indian culture, the American Indian movement, and decided to rename me Brando Skyhorse. She also renamed herself Running Deer Skyhorse. She was born Maria Banaga, Banaga being a Filipino-American name. She's Mexican-American, but her, her stepfather was Filipino. And I didn't know that this wasn't my name or that this wasn't my backstory because she had given me a backstory and, you know, photographs and the whole thing. I wasn't aware of what the truth was until I was about 12 or 13. And because my mother was a complicated person, a person who had severe mental health issues, she was suffering from borderline personality disorder, she encouraged me to keep up the lie. And because my mother could be sometimes incredibly violent, uh, I kept up the lie. And I did so until my mother passed away uh, when I was about 22, 22, 23. And then I, you know, slowly, surely uh, became more comfortable telling people, you know, a version of this story. So, okay. Here we are. So that's the short, I mean, that's the short, that's version. the very short a... version. But yeah, again, yeah. yeah, it's all, it's all in a book I wrote. So, <laughs> yeah. And you're, you were raised in Echo Park, not far from here where I am yeah, in Los Angeles. That's right. Born and raised in Echo Park. And yeah, the, the, the neighborhood in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah. We could have, we could do a whole podcast on that. A lot of, lot of changes, a lot of changes. I was going to say, and now Echo Park is like Hipsterville, but back when you were being raised there, it was a different vibe, right? It was the neighborhood that people drove through and locked their car doors on the way to Dodger Stadium. Like that's, I mean, I can't think of a better way to describe it. There were police helicopters every night, you know, it was the eighties. It was sort of like, you know, gang violence. Like, you know, it was just, it was a, to me, like it was home, right? So like you grow when you grow up, you don't think of these things. It's like, oh, this was a really unsafe neighborhood. But yeah, looking back in hindsight, yeah, it, it was, you know, it was, it was jagged. Let's call it that way. It's a jagged place to, to, to grow up. And did you ever see, or, you know, witness any crime? Or experience it, or were you the victim of any crime growing up? Uh, no, I wasn't. Well, I wasn't the victim. Yeah, did I see crime from time to time? Yes, I did. Yeah, I saw purse snatchings. I saw, you know, stuff that happened at like the grocery store. My grandmother, you know, was almost mugged on a bus. Uh, I saw like you know people steal stuff out of our bags when we went to the grocery store. Things of that nature. Nothing like I guess I don't know to that would rise to the level of like you know a serious incident. But yeah, I mean, there was that kind of like petty crime that was just like everywhere all the time. And it did seem like, you know, whenever there was some sort of like, you know, some sort of murder or some sort of gang related incident, you know, the helicopters would just flood the area at night. And, you know, it just would be like all hours. You know, there was that movie from uh, what, 90, 91, Boys in the Hood. Sure, yeah. Where like, yeah, with Cuba Gooding and like, you know, the helicopters are just this omnipresent sound. That's how it was growing up, just like just an endless barrage of like police noise. And especially also because the police academy is, I think, what, like a mile up in Elysian Park. So, yeah, it was um, it was on the regular. But like, I don't want to oversell it. It's not like, oh, I grew up in the hood and had like a hard life. Like it just, you know, it was just kind of like how it was. Yeah, but you did you know? have a hard childhood. I mean, by any standard measure, it was not the easiest childhood. It was, you know... <laughs> 
I, you know that that old cliche, it's coming from inside the house. Like a lot of like my childhood was rough because, you know, because my mom was a challenging person. I was raised essentially by my mother and my grandmother. And my mother had mental health issues. I had five stepfathers, four of whom had, you know, records of incarceration. So in many ways, I feel like, you know, it was safer in a way out on the streets than it was inside my house. So but you seem kind of a, yeah. you seem like a you seem sunny like personality wise sunny oh that's years of therapy okay that that that's <laughs> that's that's years and years of talk therapy and you know acknowledging that when you're raised in that way that you know things are just not going to work for you in the way that they work for other people so yeah when I have a conversation and we have we can talk like this and 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 have fun and have a good time and talk about my writing etc you know, then it's all good. But, you know, the other things that I'm extremely anxious about, things that, like, you know, upset me greatly, things that, you know, require me to be in therapy probably for the rest of my life. You know, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm really nervous about flying. I don't know why. Again, a plane's never done anything to me. I've never had issues in a plane, unlike, you know, my childhood or growing up with my mom or my grandma. So, yeah, it's weird how these things kind of, you know, manifest themselves. So... Yeah. Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about it and just thinking about it as somebody who, you know, did not grow up that way mm. to think of it at the level of narrative. Sure. Like you were, sure. you were given an, a, a false narrative that you carried throughout your childhood. I mean, it wasn't just like mom was struggling with mental health issues, though she was and was difficult and challenging and violent at times, like all of that stuff aside, what's interesting and maybe most germane to this show is this idea of being given a story of yourself that is inaccurate and, but yet internalizing it and believing it to be true. Like you said, she gave you a backstory. So like, did you have like a tribal affiliation growing up? So my mother would give me stories up to a point, right? So she would tell me what my tribe was, which was apparently white mountain Apache and she would tell me roughly what part of the country we were from. But when it came time to like give me actual credentials, no, there was no tribal affiliation. I was never registered with the BIA. I never had any of those kinds of like specifics, in part because my mom knew, obviously, that she wasn't able, she wouldn't have been able to uh, produce that, that documentation. Having said that, when it came time to telling enough of the story to get people, I guess, on board or to convince them, she was a very compelling storyteller. And I think you're a very astute in picking out like, you know, why one of the things I'm obsessed with as a writer is like the idea of like narratives and false narratives and passing. Like, you know, I put together an anthology on ethnic and racial passing, which explores this. But what do you mean by you know, what, do you, what do you mean by passing? Oh, so passing is the, the idea when uh, essentially somebody tries to occupy a space that's meant for somebody else. Right. So I'm Mexican-American. My mother astutely figured out, oh, if I pass my son and myself as American Indian, we will no longer be just a couple of ordinary Mexicans from Echo Park. We will cease to be, again, growing up in Los Angeles, something magical, something spectacular. Oh my God, we're American Indians. And, you know, there was this whole sort of like ritual that like my mom would, again, perform mostly for well-intentioned white people. 
we would go into like, you know, uh, jewelry stores and like, you know, wherever there was like a turquoise or a squash blossom jewelry, you know, she would have like somebody take the jewelry out and like she would feel the jewelry and say like, oh, I can tell this was made by like, you know, an American Indian. I could tell what reservation this was made on. None of that was real. None of that like actually. Oh, yeah. My mom was. Yeah. that Like I said, I wrote a whole book about it. I don't I don't want to, you know, talk your ear off about it. No, but please. there's just this there's just this sense that, you know, my mother was fascinated by the idea of reinvention. And I don't know if that's because, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, she was fascinated with Hollywood. She was fascinated with fame. You know, I, 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 I shudder to think about what my mom would be like now if she were alive. Because uh, she died before the age of like, you know, the influencer, uh, you know, the like Facebook and, and catfishing and all that kind of stuff. Because if she was alive, I have no doubt she would be manipulating the hell out of a lot of people. Wow. It feels very, so, I got to say, uh, it feels like something that is very Los Angeles. Like this whole thing, this whole, what do you want to call it? A grift or a, a hustle? Or- yeah, a hustle. I think that's, I think that's right. I, you know, and again, like, I feel like that's the part of the reason that like, I'm, I'm always fascinated by LA stories. You know, my grandmother uh, was born and raised in Los Angeles. One of the first stories she told me was about how her mother, who was obsessed with being like a Hollywood starlet, I guess, took her to the premiere of City Lights, you know, the Charlie Chaplin movie yeah. in uh, 1929, downtown, like like back when the movie premieres were downtown Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I guess like my grandmother like was almost crushed to death or something. And instead of taking my grandma aside and saying, oh, are you OK? She's like, you know, oh, you ruined my big moment. You know, I was going to, I was going to, you know, I was going to meet a movie star. Like you ruined my big moment. Like there's this running sort of motif amongst my family members, people I know, this sort of like intersection, intersections with Hollywood, intersections with fame, getting close to, but not quite touching the sort of like, you know, the machine, the Hollywood experience, the machine. Yeah, exactly. Well, but yeah, I mean, I think there's something also kind of charming and, and in a way like heartbreaking about this quest or this impulse toward reinvention of self. Like, I, I, sure. I mean, you know, you have complicated feelings, I think, about maybe wherever you live. Like, wherever you live will induce complicated feelings. But in Los Angeles, I feel like part of its charm is the fact that it can absorb people who have these big dreams. And it can help, you know, some people realize these big dreams here. I mean, that is part of the allure, right? But it also can be really sad because a lot of people's dreams <laughs> are not realized. Yeah, there's, there's always that flip isn't it? And uh, I feel that, you know, for all of the books that I've worked on, the Madonnas of Echo Park in 2010, the memoir, this anthology, I'm passing this new book, My Name is Iris, there's a thread, there's a through line of these characters who are constantly seeking a place that they can call home, constantly seeking an identity that they can say is their own. And I'm, I'm fascinated by those kinds of narratives. And I do think that in Los Angeles in particular, uh, there is this sense of accommodation that it really doesn't matter where you're from and it really doesn't matter like what like the particulars of our, of your story are. If you're interesting and you can tell a good story, we'll make a space for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the beauty of it is that it can absorb kind of weirdos here, this, this yeah. town. <laughs> like versus, I mean, we were talking before we came on the air. You now live in Indiana. You teach at IU in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Not as easy to be a... a it's... Uh, a kind yeah. of uh, like uh, eccentric in a place like that. I mean, it can be done, but it's not quite as, there's not as many. 
it's di- right. It's different. Like the 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 geography is different, right? The um, the breakdown of like people who are here from Indiana, people who have moved here, it's different. Bloomington has a more you know obviously transient uh, sort of like uh, feel to it because it is a college town. So people come in, they stay for a few years, and they leave. But uh, yeah, just even the like you know racial and ethnic dynamics of a place like Bloomington, which are again more diverse than some of the other parts of Indiana that I've been to. It's different than when you go into Los Angeles. Like in Los Angeles, like, and again, I'm not just saying LA is like this, but for me, LA is always going to be like home, right? But when you go to LA, you go to like the bank, the teller is Mexican-American, the bank manager is Mexican-American or, you know, African-American or like whatever it is. In places like Bloomington or other parts of Indiana, it's different. You can see that sort of like almost that kind of caste system here where it's like a person of color is almost like doing a certain kind of job. And if you see them doing a different kind of job, it's different. So for me, I feel like being raised in Los Angeles, being shaped by that that sense of, I want to say like possibility for everybody, right? Um, it made a difference. I, I know it's weird. I just said to you, I feel like LA is like like home to me because I have relatives out there. Uh, relatives that I didn't know existed until about 13 years ago. Again, a whole other story. Well, no, that's but like, y- your father. You didn't discover until you were in your 30s, right? You like he- yeah, my yeah, my biological father uh, took off when I was three, or you know, <laughs> getting like you know, I know that my sisters might be listening to this. So took off, was chased away, whatever language you wanted to use. <laughs> One day he was there and another day he wasn't. So when I was trying to start my second book, I, you know, thought like, oh, I had his name. Let's see if I can find him. And, you know, people told me, oh, you're going to have to hire a private detective and the whole thing. And, you know, I typed his name into whitepages.com and there he was. Took me about three minutes. I wrote him a letter and he wrote me back. And then I met him just as about Madonna's, just as Madonna's was about to publish. And uh, he had started over his new life with a new wife. And, you know, he had three daughters and, you know, I, I, all of a sudden I had three sisters. And the fascinating thing about like this whole life is that, again, he hid me in plain sight. They showed me photo albums where I was in the photo album. And my sister was like, yeah, we just thought that was a cousin from Mexico or something. We didn't know that was his son. <laughs> you know, the sense of like, wow, incredible. Wait, so right? wait, he had, he had done things with you? Like you had done things with him? Oh, so he was, yeah. So like he, uh, he lived with me until I was three. So they're like little photos. They're photos of me at like, you know, my third birthday party. And like they had rented a pony and all this other stuff. And like he had obviously kept those photos and put them again interspersed between photos of his daughters and other family members. And so when they found out that like, you know, oh, hey, like, you know, I'm your long lost brother, right? Like something out of like a Dickens novel or something. Right. You know, a couple of them were astonished. And yet my eldest sister's like, kind of had a feeling. I kind of knew I had this sense, you know, she was at a she was at a birthday party for her cousins one day. And, uh, you know, one of them went up to her and said, you know, I know something about your dad. You don't know. He has a son. Go ask him. Could you think your dad's a good man? Go ask your dad about his son that he never sees, that he never talks about. And she was like about nine or 10 years old at the time. And so all of a sudden, when she found out I existed, it was like that moment just came rushing back to her. That sense of like, oh my God, like, you know, what if I had like asked my father about this this son? Like, would he have told me? Or would he have lied? 
you know? So again, layers, layers of like identity, layers of like, you know, who are you? Who am I related to? Who am I connected to? They fascinate me as a writer. Sure. I guess obvious reasons. Yeah, I was going to say, if they <laughs> if they didn't fascinate you, something would be severely wrong. But uh, you, and you have good relationships? Like you're, you're like, you know, you have, suddenly you have three sisters, but you don't meet them till you're what, in your 30s? Like, do you- yeah, till my 30s. And uh, they're all different ages. And, uh, you know, the beautiful thing about it is that I feel like there's kind of like the life I had before I met them and the life that I had after I met them. I met them in uh, spring of 2010. And, uh, you know, it's a very sort of complimentary thing in that I feel like after my mother and grandmother died when I was 23, 24 years old, I felt like basically I had no family. And then all of a sudden, here it was, an instant family. And, you know, as these things go, you never know how people are going to respond. But, you know, after about maybe one conversation, you know, because I think they wanted to know, like, who they wanted to know, who are you? Why are you here? And do you want money? And since I didn't want money, and since I basically said I just wanted to know who you are, want to be in your life, you know, we just kind of like bonded. So we don't even use the term or the phrase half brother, half sister. They are my sisters and I am their brother. And that's the life that we've lived for like the past 13 years or so. Is there any like, any like, I mean, like usually people, even if they don't meet until later, there's a period of separation that lasts many years or something. There is something about blood, right? And like, like strange connections, like in kind of an immediate rapport or something. Was there, there any is. of that? Yeah, there is in the sense that, you know, uh, my eldest sister, you know, like she is very keen on looking for connections between us. And she is the one that has read all of my books. You know, she's like, you know, the complete sort of like, I guess, like historian, a librarian of like my, my writing experiences, you know, I've seen photos of, or I've met her nephews, obvious, her sons, excuse me, my nephews. Uh, to them, I'm Theo Brando, right? Like, they're my nephews. I'm like Uncle Brando. And to look at one of her sons, one, her younger son, like, it's like literally looking at photos of me when I was eight or nine years old. Like, wow. it's uncanny. Yeah. Like, the, the, the look, you know, the sort of the look around the eyes and the forehead, it's really incredible. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I feel that as with anything with family, right? So much of it is showing up. So I show up, you know, I send Christmas presents, I send birthday gifts, uh, I try to get out there as much as I can, sometimes not as, as often as I would like. Uh, obviously, I think the relationship dynamics would be different if I lived in Los Angeles as well. But yeah, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just having family and having that kind of family has just been really, really special for me. That's great. And, and you know, it's it's got to be, I mean, that moment or that time of your life when you're 23, 24, you're... Both your mother and your grandmother died close together, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. My mom was uh, uh, taking speed and fen-fen to lose weight, which, again, kind of an insane thing. She was 50, and uh, it just was one of those very, very sudden things. You know, I got a phone call from her on a Saturday. I uh, just moved to the East Coast, and then, you know, a few days later, uh, my fifth stepfather called me and, and told me that, you know, she had died. And it was one of those moments where it was like, it was so sudden, I just, I went out, you know, I just lost it for a while, you know, and it was a very, very dark period. And then, of course, several months later, my grandmother passed. And so these sort of two women, these towering figures that had essentially like had raised me and taken care of me, uh, all of a sudden they were gone. Well, how did your, how did your yeah. mom die? She was taking speed and what, she had a heart attack? She was taking, yeah, she uh, died of something uh, called, I guess, dilated cardiomyopathy, right? So basically, like, your heart gets so flabby, it can't pump blood. 
And so because she was obviously not supposed to be taking speed, and I believe Fen Fen, it came out later, uh, like like sort of lawsuits or whatever, but taking excessive amounts of Fen Fen destroyed the elasticity in your heart, which basically prevents it from pumping blood. And so again, like I don't know exactly how much she was taking, but you know, when I came back home, like there were just pill containers everywhere. So obviously not under a doctor's orders, not doing it in a, in a prescribed way. I think that that sense of, you know, who she was, right? Like was so far, she was so far away from that idea. Cause you know, my mother in the seventies, she was a beautiful woman. I know it's normal to say that. Yeah. Your mother's a beautiful woman. She was a beautiful woman. She was very skinny. And then just over the years, it just gained lots and lots of weight. She became a recluse. You know, she was uh, working at home for many years as a phone sex operator. It was the only work that I guess she felt comfortable doing. Did you, and, you know, did you as a child witness this? Like, was mom just like doing phone sex while you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, well. So let me let me say, like I said, it's in the memoir. I feel like I'm selling the wrong book. Listen, here. we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to it. Don't worry, we're gonna get to the new book. Don't worry. So, it, 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 it was the last book I I wrote about. Yeah, you know, like my mom was conscientious about the fact that, like, oh, okay, so like you know, the door should be closed when I'm working, you know, and like when the doors open, uh, you can come in. But uh, yeah, like I would overhear it. And, you know, the, the story that my mom loved to tell, because again, she was the best storyteller I've ever known in the world. She would tell me it was my idea. We were sitting on the couch. I was apparently eight or nine years old. We were watching Donahue and, you know, Phil Donahue. Oh, yeah. Right? Like yeah, the yeah. Guy, yeah, the big the big talk shows. And so one of the, the segments was like on like, you know, phone sex operators, people who like, you know, have sex with men on the phone for money. And supposedly I leaned over to her and I said, you could do that. <laughs> is that true i don't i don't feel like that's something i would do as a nine-year-old but maybe i don't know because she was unhappy at work uh she was a headhunter before she started this line of work you know for 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 uh, i guess like management jobs etc she had been cheated out of a commission all of that again seems plausible and so she answered an ad a tiny little ad uh back in the newspapers or like one of those like uh, i guess the la weekly alternative weekly uh, the name of the company was called Inside Moves. And, uh, you know, she started working. Yeah, see, th- yeah, this is so elaborate, right? Like all these little details that I've managed to cling to. Right? I love it. And she started She started working there. And, uh, yeah, she did that for, gosh, I don't know, uh, 15, 16 years. Yeah, 15, 16 years for most, of, for most of her life. And the problem with that, again, you know, she was working at home. She was making money that wasn't taxed. So like at a certain point, like, you know, she wasn't paying rent to my grandmother. So much money was coming in, but, you know, she stopped leaving the house. Uh, She stopped just taking care of herself. And uh, I think she just drifted further and further away from, I guess, this idea of like, you know, oh, like I'm a beautiful woman. Like I live in Los Angeles, you know, like I have dreams and aspirations. Like, I don't think that was her aspiration. I don't think to be a phone sex operator, but yet somehow here we are, right? Like she just fell into sex work. And the idea of like making making men's dreams come true, albeit very temporarily, right? That's what she ended up doing. And I think it destroyed her emotionally and physically. I was going to say, like, there's got to, ha- I mean, if you do that for 15 or 16 years, day after day, having these conversations, pretending to be aroused or whatever, I mean, that's got to be, like, there's got to be a degenerative effect on oh, your... Oh, and, and again, not even like, you know, the way that it's done now, right? Like, because again, we're talking the early 1980s. So like the idea of a headset, 
right? Just the idea of a headset that you could pair to a phone. I remember spending months with her looking for some kind of like headset operation that she could like pair up with her phone so she wouldn't basically be like, you know, again, like holding the phone, like crut like, you know, clutched to between her shoulder and her ear. Like just that, like that physical degenerative process. Like if I feel like the job just kind of like ate away at her, just pieces at a time, physically and emotionally. So yeah, it was a rough, it was a rough hustle for sure. Did she have any aspiration to be a celebrity? Like, did she want to be an actor? Not explicitly, but I think that there was, she was kind of right on that line. I, I think that for her, just the, the, the joy of telling people stories and having an audience, like one-to-one, she, she loved it. She yeah. loved it. I don't know if she had that sense of like, you know, oh, I want to go and do this in a more professional way, like, you know, taking headshots or anything like that. I think she just really enjoyed the immediacy, the one-on-one -on -one nature of like, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. And again, depending on what kind of mood she was in, you would hear stories about how she crossed paths with Ted Bundy, Dennis Wilson. You know, I mean, like I could go wait, on. Like, wait, just when did she, wait, wait, she crossed paths with Ted Bundy? That's what she said. Oh yeah, she went uh, it, it, again. It's all in the memoir. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the the first uh, the first story that I tell people about my mom is uh, she was like out with some guy, and again, you know, it was late '60s, early '70s, so maybe kind of plausible because maybe Bundy was in like Southern California for a while, and uh, it was supposedly some guy that had like you know, uh, I guess she had met at like a bar or something, and like you know, he was like, oh, like I can drive you home, or I forget what the the exact circumstances was. So she dr he drove her home. And, you know, instead of driving her home, he drove her off on this, like, kind of shadowy path somewhere out in the woods somewhere, maybe out somewhere in Griffith Park. And supposedly, just as he, like, left his car to go get something from his trunk, this gang, this motorcycle gang of Hells Angels came in, swooped in. He takes off. She runs toward them. She then hops on the back of a Harley, and then they take her back home. And then months and months, or I guess a couple years later, she's on, you know, watching television and she sees, you know, this guy on the television and it's like, oh my God, that's the guy who like abducted me. And of course it was Ted Bundy. I'm prepared to believe that. Yeah. It's <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> Sounds right. It all lights up. And of course, right? Yeah, of course it was Ted Bundy that abducted her. And of course it was a gang of Hell's Angels that saved her. And of course, you know what I mean? Like it, it was always these sorts of like, like stacking upon stacking upon stacking of details. And, you know, the, the thing that like I think about in talking about my mom now is that my mom's life was so fantastical, right? Just the whole bit with like, you know, Skyhorse and, and writing to men in prison and things of that nature. It's like she didn't need, she didn't need this additional layer of invention. She didn't need this sort of like all these sort of fantastical stories to make herself interesting to people. And that's the one sort of thing, you know, again, years and years of therapy. Like if I could go back in time and just have like five minutes with my mom, that's what I would say. Like you never needed any of that. Like people are already drawn to you. People are already compelled by who you are and the stories you tell. Just that, that, that's enough. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we talk about like Los Angeles and the entertainment industry and the kinds of people that are attracted uh, to this place. And then obviously there's this narrative that was, uh, you know, placed upon you as a young child. Yeah. Yeah. Your your first name, I can't help but notice that your first name is Brando. Yes. (laughs) You know, which, which does have a uh native american correlation because he, he was a huge advocate that was that the connection is that the reason of why of course yeah. of course and you know again if you spent any time with my mother you know it wouldn't be five minutes in before she would tell you you know oh well you know i met marlon brando marlon brando is brando skyhorse's godfather because of course he was right not the godfather who was in the movie, but literally my actual godfather. He told, she told this story to uh, one of her like, like long-term boyfriends who became kind of like a surrogate father figure to me. That was the first story that she told him and he believed it, 100%. Why, who would make up something that ridiculous? Well, there, my, mom. Mom, my mom, my mom, yeah. Well, and we should say for, pe- for people listening who might not have context, you know, Marlon Brando, the, you know, famous American actor was not himself Native American, but was an advocate for the Native American cause. That's right. And that's famously right. when he won, I believe the Oscar for the Godfather. For the Godfather, it? that's right. Instead yeah. of going on stage and accepting the award himself, he sent in his place a Native American young woman who was probably like 22 years old Sachin or something. Sachin Littlefeather, that's yeah. right. And yeah. she accepted the award. And the reason he did that was because he was trying to bring attention to the awful way that the uh, movie and uh, television industries had portrayed Native Americans on film. And they were often, you know, in old Cowboys and Indians movies yeah. and that sort of yeah. you know, narrative dynamic, they were often uh, mischaracterized and just treated horribly. So... I feel like the move, I mean, it was kind of lampooned at the time. And I want to say this woman got booed by like John Wayne, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's a move that I think has aged well. I think so. And, you know, again, thinking about like timing and such, right? Because, you know, I believe that happened in March or April 73. Because I think The Godfather came out in 72 and I was born in August. So obviously, again, like this kind, this kind of like rhetoric, this kind of like attitude was in the air. 
And, you know, it is something that, like, I am conscientious of that, you know, the reason I told you this story at the beginning, like, oh, I'm not American Indian, because that's, that's, that was one of the sort of push-pull dynamics that my mom would have, is that she would always say, you know, you don't need to tell anybody that you're Mexican. You're Brando Skyhorse. That's it, right? And for me, like, that just never sat well. And the older I got, like, the less uncomfortable it made me. And, you know, she would say all the time, like, oh, you know, you're too honest, you're too honest. Like, you can't be my son. Like, you're too honest. Like, he's like, she would always be conscious of the story, right? She's like, that's not the story people want to hear. They don't want to hear that you're a Mexican-American. To me, like, that's a much more interesting story. It's so much more interesting to be Brando Ulloa, who is now Brando Skyhorse, you know, uh, a Mexican-American who had a mom that had some issues, as opposed to the story that she was trying to create for me, which was Brando Skyhorse, son of an American Indian chief and and you know, uh, somebody who was like, you know, who had like connections with Marlon Brando. Because to me, the idea of, you know, usurping someone's identity, right? Usurping someone's culture, right? You know, and taking from a people, taking from a heritage and a culture that has had so much taken away from him, you know, to me, like that was like, that was the line. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious about how, my mother and I would have navigated that dynamic because for me to acknowledge this story would have also meant she would have had to have acknowledged hers, that she wasn't actually running Deer Sky Horse, that she was actually Maria Banaga, you know, somebody that like, you know, uh, was raised in Lompoc and then came back down to LA and, you know, lived a kind of very ordinary, like, lifestyle. So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. It's interesting is an understatement. You... <laughs> I don't care how uh, great your imagination is. There's absolutely no way that you could possibly ever conjure a story better than the story in which you were raised. I mean, like, it's it's like beyond belief. You know what I'm saying? Like this thing, like truth is stranger than fiction. I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it 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 is. And uh, you know, when I was when I was constructing the memoir, like I was very very conscientious because uh, yeah, I would have these conversations with my editor, and you know, there's the whole thing, you know, back in the early 2000s about like you know, falsified memoirs and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I guess for me, it was like the reason that book took me so long was because the first draft of it was essentially written almost like almost like a legal brief. Like there were no scenes. There was maybe like three lines of dialogue. And, you know, my editor kind of to her horror <laughs> looked at this. and was like, what is this? Like, I, we can't we can't sell this. This isn't a memoir. It's like this. You're You're trying to prove that all the things in this book happened and you know she was like very very clear she's like look you know if we care about you as the narrator we'll believe it you know and then you just have to trust that the reader will take you the rest of the way home and it was really really smart advice so that whole process you know just writing that memoir and getting it down for me was cathartic for so many reasons but most of all for having a place where i could finally just start at the beginning of the book Here's everything that happened to me. Here are all these wild, fantastical stories, beginning, middle, and end. And I could process it and understand it in a way that, um, that was enlightening and hopefully entertaining, as opposed to the way that I approached my history up to this point, which was like so complicated and so convoluted and so many twists and turns. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, yeah, for, yeah. for, yeah, for like a narrative, like a, a life narrative, as complicated as yours was growing up, the act of having to put it into book form 
having to make it palatable to a general audience, a general readership. Yeah. Must have must have yeah, must have been right. useful to you in some way because it sort of forced you to like look at it and uh make sense of it and put it in order. I don't know. It just seems like a nice thing to do, especially for something as as complex as your childhood. <laughs> well, you know what it was, Brad? The 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 thing of it was is once it became a book, once it became this physical object, all of a sudden, and I know this is a weird thing to say, it's like my mom made sense. Right. It's like I could see, oh, this wasn't like, you know, th this hysterical, crazy life that I had wasn't just like, oh, some sort of Jerry Springer soap opera. Right. It was just a series of really poor decisions compounded over time, like, like bank interest. And so for me, just to kind of see that sense of like that causal link, oh, okay, so yeah, like it, my family didn't start out as a sideshow. Here's step one, here's step two, here's sort of the causal, causal, link, causal links, excuse me, between all these actions, and now it makes sense. And now my mom makes sense, and now my grandma makes sense. So just for that alone, it was uh, incredibly, it was a really gratifying experience. That is a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'm not going to make you go through all five of your stepfathers, but you mentioned it briefly. <laughs> I won't do that to you. Uh, but, but I could do the great greatest hits if that's what you'd like. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure my listeners, my listeners would love it, but what they should do is read all your stuff and especially the memoir. But, you know, I want to, I want to kind of tie this point to the fact that you went on to go to Stanford. You got yeah. your, you got your MFA at, at Cal Irvine. At UC like, Irvine. That's right. Yeah. That's okay. right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, an incredibly well-educated person, somebody who came out of a very difficult childhood by any measure and yet go, goes to Stanford and then gets his MFA at one of the finest creative writing programs in the country. That's not, statistically speaking, the likeliest scenario for somebody who grew up the way that you did. And I know that your mother was a very difficult woman and, you know, your grandmother was there, so they're raising you, but it's tough. And then all these men, many of whom had records of incarceration, yeah. as you said, mm -hmm. were coming through the house. Mm -hmm. Were there any of them that had like a, like, like a real positive impact on you? Like, how do you piece together the fact that you kind of made it out of this situation and moved on to live a productive and healthy life you're getting therapy you're teaching college you're publishing books that are winning awards i mean you're a big success story it's a triumph did any of these men play a role in helping you get a sense of yourself or uh like how to, like talk about that part of it you yeah know? yeah i mean this is obviously this is a question that i have been asked before i don't really have a clean answer uh, I think it's twofold. Um, number one, obviously, you know, in writing about my mom and my grandmother, you know, the stories that are salacious are the ones that are the most interesting. She would do all these kind of fantastical things, both of them. But then there's also the really boring side of both of these women, the sides that ensured that, oh, you know, I'm going to take Brando to get his first library card. I'm going to take Brando to like, you know, a bookstore and show him these like phonics works, phonics workbooks far beyond his age. And we're going to sit down and do them. Both my mother and grandmother did this and they did this for, well, again, until my mom basically became a recluse, but my grandmother in particular, 
you know, they would do this for years. Uh, there was one father figure uh, I have. Uh, and again, if you read the book, you'll see who it is. Who also, I think, realized that like, oh, this kid's something special. And so he would take me to activities that I guess he thought like, you know, were appropriate for an adult, but maybe not. Like, for instance, like, I think I was 10 or 11 when he took me over to, you know, in LA, there's the Taper 2, not the Mark Taper form, the Taper 2 that's on the side of the Hollywood freeway. Okay. So I don't know if it's still there or not, but it used to be like a little like theater, like a little like black box theater, which you would find in New York. And he took me to a Spalding Gray monologue. Who takes an 11 year old, 10 or 11 year old kid to a Spalding Gray monologue? You know what I mean? But at some point, I guess he thought, like, oh, did you find that interesting? Yeah, sure, I guess. I mean, you know, the guy talked a lot. I don't know, like, what we were supposed to do. So I think that, you know, there's always, I, I'm always uh, conscientious to acknowledge that even with people who have mental health issues and even, you know, in like, my mother and grandmother's darkest rages, and it got pretty dark, you know, as they got older, there were, you know, instances, you know, of physical violence and assault and, and you know, uh, it, it was tough. There was still that flip. And again, borderline, right? When somebody is borderline, you know, yeah, what on is one that? hand... What, what, is, what is borderline personality? It seems so, like mysterious to me. Yeah. So borderline personality disorder, uh, from what I've gathered from the... the limited I've been able to read about it, is that you have somebody who essentially is not able to get a firm footing on like what reality is. So it's constantly shifting in which they, on one hand, will perceive you as like their best friend in the world and they can't do enough for you. It's almost like a drug. It's like a drug where they'll be like, oh my God, Brando, like we're going to do all these things for you. I'm going to take you to Disneyland. I'm going to take you to this musical. You're so bright. You're so smart. You know, the, 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 you're my son and, and the, the world is your oyster. And then six hours later, there's like a dip. And that dip is frightening. It, it often comes out of nowhere. You are a horrible human being, Brando. You are not my son. I don't even know what son you are. I wish I had aborted you. I heard that. I heard I wish I had aborted you probably about maybe three or four times a week. Jesus. Right? And then six hours later, oh, Brando, you know I didn't mean that. You know that I love you. Here, let me make it up to you. Here, let me give you some money. Why don't you go to Disneyland with Grandma? Why don't we order pizza? Like there was this constant like push-pull. So you never really had a sense of, again, a firm footing of who who's my parent? Who's in charge here? And as my mom got older and as my grandma got older, you know, the especially with, with, uh, with my mom in particular, the mental health issues, they were just compounded. And obviously, you know, that made it more challenging to have relationships with a number of the stepfathers that lived in my house. So I spent a lot of time watching 80s movies. 80s pop culture movies because we had cable. And I think somewhere, somewhere along the, of those like cheesy, ridiculous, stupid 80s comedies and movies, I saw, oh, there's Suburbia. Look at that house that they have in Ferris Bueller's Day Out. That looks like a cool house. I bet that's a cool neighborhood. Look at how normal their family is. And I think just over time, right, just that saturation of pop culture, all the books, because again, I was a very early reader. Somehow, some way, it got thrown into this stew where I realized, oh, that's my way out. That's what I need to do to get out. Tell stories. It's not, yeah, tell stories, basically. Yeah. 
But maybe like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes a, it makes a certain kind of sense. Your mom told stories, but you told them in a different way, maybe yeah. a, health, a healthier way. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. But yeah, I think that sense that, you know, I often tell my students that, you know, storytelling can save your life. It doesn't mean that it'll save everyone's life, but I think it saved this one. I think it saved mine. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt, man. That's It's wild. It's wild. And it's, you know, it's just impossible to talk to you for the first time without talking about stuff. <laughs> no, no worries, man. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Like, so uh, I do want to, like, let's get to the new book. Yeah, yeah. Which is your second novel. So, yeah, it's, um, well, it's my third book. But it, you know, it's actually my fourth, but some people don't count anthologies. But second so, novel. Yeah, it's my second novel. Uh, right. It's 13 years after the first one. and uh, Which is yeah. called The Madonnas of Echo Park. The Madonnas Park. of Echo Park, yeah. and Wh- uh, Which, we should tell people, won the Penn Hemingway Award. It did win the Penn Hemingway Award. It won the Sue Kaufman Award for First Fiction. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that book. I, I, I feel like... You know, I don't know if you have authors here who kind of like look back on their first books and say like, oh, like I would do all this and I would change that and blah, 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 blah. I was like, you know what? Like, I love the fact that like it's a snapshot of what my abilities as a writer were then. Like, I love that it's preserved somewhere. Sure. So, yeah. That's a healthy way to think yeah, of it. I mean, yeah. I've had mixed, re- I've had like mixed feelings about my first book through the years. And I think I've gotten to that place where it's like, you know what? It is what it is. I was in my twenties. Like, go easy on yourself. Well, yeah, you had to write it, right? Like, there was no, there was no other way around it. Like, you had to write it, and you had to write it that way. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That was it. Take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the new book, uh, my name is Iris, is a book like, as you said, it's a story about identity, uh, very much. It's about a woman named Iris Prince, who's actually named Ines, uh, but kind of renames herself because what she has a teacher like a rude teacher basically growing up who doesn't know how to pronounce her name and so she renames her and then she sort of adopts it because you know iris if we're going to take the name that she kind of has uh, glommed onto and given herself essentially is very concerned with assimilation and belonging and just not not wanting to be noticed this is a person who kind of desperately wants to blend yeah 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 and again like just that whole story right about how uh my young character inez gets renamed by a school teacher uh and becomes iris right i'm sure some of your astute more astute listeners have noticed some parallels between my backstory and why i'm drawn to this kind of narrative but you know I, i i think that if you ask people like, you know, that's a very common story. It's not only a common LA story, but it's a common immigrant story. It's a common American story. And, you know, I wanted to kind of start from a place of a character who feels that she is essentially quote unquote made it. And so we start with a character who feels very comfortable talking to you. It's a very intimate first person voice. So if you pick up the book, you'll see this is a character that's very comfortable talking to you. She knows where the lines are. She knows what she'll tell you. She knows what she won't discuss. But it's this sense of immediacy, almost like kind of like instant friendship and the sense of like, you know, I'm going to tell you this story because it's an American story and you're an American. And obviously, you know, you would relate to this and you would relate to my experience. And you 
you start off with somebody who is ready to make a transition. She uh, got married. The, the, the marriage wasn't particularly bad. It just wasn't right for her. Uh, she separates. It's an amicable separation. Uh, everything kind of moving by the book. She, she uh, moves into a new house. She has her nine-year-old daughter. And uh, she has set herself in the quote-unquote perfect suburban neighborhood. And she realizes, you know, just before things go south in this book, uh, she realizes, oh, look, I've accomplished everything that I've wanted. And I've done so through hard work and dedication and keeping my head down and my mouth shut and not making any waves. That's the American way. And she wakes up one morning and she's got a beautiful view outside. You know, she's got her front lawn and everything. And all of a sudden, there is a wall in her front yard where there was no wall before. Okay. So I got I to gotta stop you. One of the things that I want to say that's top of mind for me about this book, and I should say it's, this is kind of top of mind for me about a lot of books that I'm reading lately, just as a function of, of time, is that there's something very Trumpy about this book. Mm. Um, so like a lot of novels being published now have, a, have like a Trumpy vibe because they were written during that era. Also, yeah. A pandemic vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's just natural because of the the calendar. You know that people were quarantining or were you know moving through those strange years and volatile years. It's natural that there would be a lot of books that are inflected with that, and this yeah, one certainly yeah. is. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's again so important for me that the T word, <laughs> the T word, is never mentioned in this book. Right. There's there's no relation. There's no like, you know, uh, sort of like bellicose ramblings. There's no sort of like, you know, pulling in from like, you know, uh, modern modern day experience, because I realized in, in an early version of this book that any attempt at satire would be outstripped. I literally could not keep up with how ridiculous things have been in this country for the past six years. Anything that I would have written would have been like completely like moved on down the line. So for me, the challenge was like, how can I write something that is representative of my experience? Because for me, the, the, the past few years as a Mexican-American, Trump is relevant. It's about the wall, right? And for me, for the past six to seven years, like hearing that word over and over and over again it became something different. You know, the idea of like what a wall is, you even say that word now, wall, like it used to be a dead noun. Now it's like the punch of a, of like a, like a, like an advertising slogan, like something you would say at a sports game. And like, you know, thinking about, again, when I started this book in 2016, you know, uh, the word became animated. It became something alive. So it's like, is there a way that I could bring this into a book without all of the connotations, without all of the, the sort of the make America great again, because, you know, none of that's really necessary. The core of this book is what what is this one woman willing to do in a country and a landscape that she thought was hers and is slowly, systematically being stripped away? How far is she going to go? Well, okay, so we should tell people, just to kind of give them the gist of this novel, that the world of the novel is, like, I don't know if the place is defined. It's just somewhere in like the American Southwest, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, it's, it's not really defined. It could be really anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah it felt Southwesty to me. Uh, or maybe just because I'm in California. I was yeah, 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 it. sure. But sure. The, the situation at hand is dystopian. 
we have a new technology called the band. Mm, mm -hmm. So there's like this kind of sci-fi dystopian techno futuristic aspect to the book. There is, as you said, this wall that just starts growing in her mm -hmm. front lawn. So mm -hmm. that's like supernatural or magical realist, mm -hmm. uh, realism. There's mm -hmm. that aspect. Then there's also like a ghost story aspect yep. where there's this friend of hers named Brenda that she was, you know, a childhood buddies with who was killed in a mass shooting at a McDonald's. Yep. yep. So there's these different things. And then she's got the family thing, just kind of the, the more ordinary, like real life sort of stuff where she's a mother, has a nine-year-old daughter, divorced from this husband, her parents, her sister. There's just family stuff. So it's a family novel too. And the world that everybody's living in and the real tension of the novel has to do with the fact that uh, Iris's parents are not American citizens. That's right. And so everybody right. who is an American citizen in this dystopian, not too distant future, all too plausible you mm -hmm. know, version of America, <laughs> everybody who is a citizen has to wear this band, which is you know, some sort of newfangled technology that people can scan. You can pay for things with it, right? Yep. It's, an, it's an instant way for people to identify physically as a citizen, just because yep. you can see the band on people, but it's also a way for law enforcement and even businesses to verify that you're a citizen before yep, you can all, yep all that kind of stuff so yeah the big narrative tension of the story has to do with the fact that you can't get in this novel in the story you know in the world of this novel you can't get a band unless you are the child of, of american citizens that's right and so that's the conundrum for iris is that her that's parents are right. not citizens her daughter can get a band right yep but she can't and yep think the walls are sort of closing in things are getting dark quickly like new like you know the rules are taking effect as we move through this novel mm -hmm. and so there's this kind of vice grip feeling of like oh shit you know things are this is the way things go this is what the last few years have taught us yeah. is that it's not usually like a sudden all at once sort of moment where things get terrible it's a slow creep right and you feel that you draw that very well in this book yeah, well, yeah, thank you, Brad. I, you know, you were describing all these different genres, and I was like, yeah, there's really something for everybody, really. I mean, like, you yeah. know, if you want a, a family novel, we've got that. If you want a thriller, supernatural, yeah, you know, if, if, wait a few, read a few pages. If it's not the genre you like, skip a few. Like, you <laughs> might get to a genre you do like. I don't know. But, you know, the idea behind this, I think, is, you know, who am I? Where, where am I? Right. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of the rhetoric, uh, you know, that I've heard over the past few years. Right. Uh, from well-intentioned people is like, this is America? Question mark. And, you know, again, as a person of color, it's like, well, of course this is. Right. You know, of course this is. And, you know, that's not like that's not met in like a, you know, derogatory or, you know, uncomplimentary way. It's just an observation. It's just really an observation. And the thing that I feel uh, made this book so challenging to write, but also at the same time so essential to write, was to try to get to the core of Iris's true feelings. What do you do when you have so much of your identity invested in this specific kind of Americanness? This Americanness, which has been, I feel, like drilled into many of us of a certain age, that if you do all the right things and you jump through the right hoops and you say all the right things and you follow all of the rules. Iris is nothing else but a, a rule follower. If you do all of that, well, then you're home. 
right? And things are going to go well for you. And things are going to go well for you. Yeah, you can you can have the American dream. Which is another, I mean, just to kind of keep this thread running through the conversation, it is very much another kind of narrative that I guess we're all fed if we grow up here to some extent, maybe some of us more so than others. But Iris, as a human being, is very invested in that story, you know, and it's a... It's its own kind of fiction. It's a it's a powerful story. It's a, it's a story that has motivated the American ethos, I would say, for hundreds of years. It's an incredibly compelling narrative. The the bootstrap narrative, the sense that, you know, if you have not found your place, if you have not found your security, your sense of identity, that's not America's fault. That's your fault. You did something wrong. You right. somehow violated the rules. Right. So I'm always fascinated when I talk to writers who are able to do the sorts of things that you do in this book, where you have what is, in essence, like a suburban family story unfolding. And then suddenly, just like without really any explanation, a wall starts growing in this woman's front lawn that some people can see and some people can't see. Mm -hmm. There are certain rules, you know, that I guess you had to come up with for this for this thing. <laughs> and then there's a, then there's a ghost you know, Brenda, it's sort of creepy. It's spooky. Yeah, you know, Bre yeah, Brenda yeah, yeah. shows up. But it's like to make those things work on the page and to include them all of a sudden in a story that is not fantastical otherwise. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that blend yeah, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, Wa walking, yeah. walking that line and making it work. Can you talk a little bit about like the things that you have to do as a writer to make sure that you don't lose a reader by doing those things? Like how do you... How do you blend those disparate elements in a way that is like workable and uh, that that a reader will buy into? Well, first, let me thank you for acknowledging that it did work because I don't think I was convinced myself that I was able to pull this off up until maybe when the book was actually published and sent out and started getting reviews. I think like I still was like, huh? Like put all of this in one book? Like, you know, couldn't have spread it around three, four or five different novels. There's always that sense of insecurity, that sense of like, have I taken another left turn? Have I, you know, gone too far out? Have I, you know, have I made this something ridiculous? Right. Right. Because if I were to describe, like, if you're just to describe these components, oh, oh, you read Brandon Skyros? Well, great name. What's the book about? Oh, it's a mystery and it's a thriller and a ghost story. Like, oh, well, 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 like all in one book. Like, right? That sense of like, what? what's the one sort of like Jenga block that you put on top that collapses the whole thing? And the thing that I feel, uh, this is something that like, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, uh, a lot of time uh, thinking about with, uh, you know, students here at IU, uh, both in the undergraduate and the graduate level program is what does your character want? What does your main character really want? And as long as that goal is credible, and it could be a fantastical goal, it could be like you want the Holy Grail or whatever, as long as that goal, that desire is credible, I believe a reader will follow you everywhere, anywhere you want to go in the book. And to me, again, you read those first few pages of the book, it's clear what Iris wants. She just wants to blend in nice and easy, she just wants to be one of us, one of the gang. And she just wants to know what are the rules? Just tell me what the rules are. Whatever it is you want me to do to be quote unquote American, I'll do it. 
and she believed she had done it. And then all of a sudden she realizes, oh, you know, all these external forces. And again, this is a journey that she has to go through the whole novel. Like she's piecing it together as we're piecing it together. You know, she comes to that realization that, oh, um, maybe my understanding, my desire was perhaps uh, a little misguided. Maybe I need something else to desire. Maybe I need something bigger to want. Maybe that's going to finally move me from like one end of this narrative to the other. So as far as balancing all these different genres, like I really trusted in Iris and I really trusted in her belief that what she wanted was credible and believable. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like there are certainly people like that, right? Who, I mean, I kind of have a little bit of that. I always say like, wherever I live, I end up dressing like the median dude in my <laughs> vertical. Like I lived in Colorado and I suddenly had like long hair and was wearing like puffer vests and, you know, I don't and know. You, what but I, you also lived in Indiana too. And right? I had like yeah. a hat, I had like a hat on backwards. And like, <laughs> I chewed tobacco. <laughs> I just want to blend in. Like I don't yeah, want anybody, sure. espe especially visually, like I don't want to stand out. Yeah. Right. I can't like, like these people who like have like this really like kind of flamboyant style, they walk out of the house and they're wearing this, you know, everyone's just like looking at them. I, I cannot think of anything worse than that, to walk out into public and have all eyes on me. I just want to like blend in. I like that. I like that sort of anonymity. Um, but I think there's a, you know, there's obviously a, a different, like there's a different uh, dynamic at work for Iris where like, yeah, she wants to blend, but she wants to blend for reasons of assimilation. Like she doesn't want to stir the pot, doesn't want anybody calling her out. She just wants to like, feel a sense of, of deep belonging a deep belonging and right there right that's how all the pieces at least as i see it that's how they all fit together from her parents she learns you blend in you get you become a success you get to like buy a house and live a nice quiet life the ghost story from brenda right as you mentioned one of her uh you know uh young friends who was murdered uh in a McDonald's. And again, if you are familiar with California history, that's me dipping in again because there was a massacre in a McDonald's in 1984. And uh, oh, wow. that I massacre, didn't know that. yeah, that happened uh, in uh, San Ysidro. And uh, the person uh, whose name I'm not going to speak, uh, who committed this atrocity, something like 21 people were murdered. Boy. And he chose a McDonald's specifically that was popular with Mexican Americans. Hispanic Americans. He deliberately chose that. Then, of course, also, you know, the Walmart massacre in El Paso, right? So Iris, my character, is learning these lessons that if you are too visible, you could be hurt, you could be shot, you could be killed, you could be like wh whatever, right? So if I draw this from my parents, you know, keep my head down, do X, Y, Z, I'll be a model citizen. If I do this over here, I don't make waves. Like, you know, I, 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 I mind my manners. Like, I follow all the rules. Nothing can hurt me. And it's a pretty, again, it's, it seems like a sensible way to live until this, this tide, basically, knocks at her door and says, you know what? The days for you looking out for yourself and looking out for your daughter are over. What are you going to do now? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's unsettling. And it's all too plausible and real, especially for people of color, for people who are undocumented. 
I mean, there are so many people living on a kind of knife's edge in this country. Yes, and that's right. This book that's speaks right. to that. And, and it speaks to that. And what's interesting is that there are so many people who are like kind of living on that knife's edge and sort of come here on that knife's edge. And that's their only real experience of this place. But in Iris, you have somebody who thought of herself as kind of fully assimilated. Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly she finds herself on that knife's edge. That's a more dramatic set of circumstances, right? I mean, it's like, I think uh, it, it's a big, it's, you know, it's, it's massively destabilizing. Let's just put it's, it that right. way. It's, it's the sense of like, you know, oh, what happens after the happily ever after? So for me, she starts at the happily ever after. And then piece by piece has this unraveled. And, you know, again, uh, talking about these characters as if they're real, I feel like Iris is a really good sport going through all of these really horrific types of episodes throughout the book. But what I wanted to get to, what I was really interested in investigating, because it's a question that I ask about myself as a person, that I think anyone living in America is asking themselves, like, where are we? What, what, what's going on here? And, and what do, and if I am somehow dissatisfied or nervous, afraid about the direction that our country is headed in, what am I prepared to do about it? What can I do about it? Yeah, I think, you know, question a lot of us are asking ourselves. Yeah. Like it's, it's a really unsettling time in this country's history. And it's just an unsettling time to be a human being, period. I, you know, I feel like with the climate and with the, the uh, like geopolitical situation, like everything, I mean, I guess it's always been thus, right? Things have always been apocalyptic and weird and bad for humanity on this planet, but it just feels like maybe extra dramatic right now. It, do, it does feel like it requires a lot of labor just to be, you know, present, you know, yeah. just, yeah. just to be here. And, uh, yeah, like I was, I was going to, I was going to say to you, but trust me, this is a really good book. You'll really, you'll really want to read this because I'm thinking like, wow, this sounds really heavy. Well, I, uh, so I, I hope, uh, you know, uh, to anyone that's listening here, you know, I'm not leaving you with the, the impression of like, yeah, this is a really downer, really big downer, and like it just kind of ends. I I hope that you know any any art, right? Any any work that you know you said you've written a book and you've written books, uh, you know the whole I think objective of an artist, right, is you are creating from a place of hope. You have to, right? Like you are creating from the sense of you know here's what I see around me, you know here's what I find problematic here's my contribution to the conversation will this impact people will will people read this like you know is this something that you know um people might like you know find some some sort of not to say that art needs to be useful but to get some sort of like message some kind of understanding i have to believe that like you know that is one of the best things that art can do for us and can teach us well what about the process of writing a female protagonist mm -hmm. you know that's a mm -hmm. that's kind of a creative risk you know to write outside of your gender and to you know to have to take on the responsibilities associated with that can you talk a little bit about yeah, that yeah yeah i i think it was important for me to write 
from a woman's perspective in that once it became clear what Iris's concerns were, safety, security, etc., I realized that so many of these concerns overlapped with those that were shared by my mother and grandmother. You know, I was raised in a house of very uh, unstable people, I guess for lack of a better, polite, more polite phrase. But the one, two constants uh, were my mother and my grandmother. And again, even in their darkest days where, you know, they were emotionally and physically abusive, you know, they were still my caretakers. And so I think that, you know, having been raised in a house filled with women caretakers and being privy to what that entails, what that involves, how are we going to get, you know, how are we going to, you know, who's going to go get the groceries? What are we making for dinner? Like, you know, who's going to handle like the laundry, like all these sorts of like, just kind of like things about just your day-to-day existence, but also, you know, my survival. How are we going to get Brando's, you know, shoes? Like, you know, you don't get your check until Friday. When are we going to get Brando's clothes? You know, all this sort of stuff that was never really, I don't think it ever crossed any of like my stepfather's paths. Like the idea, I don't think, you know, with the exception of maybe one stepdad, I, you know, none of them really cooked or made a meal. None of them did any chores. None of them really contributed any money to the household. So there was just this sense of like these kinds of like, almost like ghosts in a way. They would kind of like drift in and out of like my, uh, like, I guess like my life, like my, my upbringing. So to me, when it came time to like, okay, I want to write about this character. She's a caretaker. You know, she has very sort of specific ideas about what safety and security mean. It felt natural to draw on my experience growing up with two very strong, um, yeah, two very strong women caretakers. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The fact that you would be able to write uh, a dimensional and believable female protagonist considering you were raised by these two women. Yeah, I hope it's credible. Yeah, because again, as a writer, you always do the best you can. I hope that it's credible. But again, like it, it feels like, you know, Iris's concerns, many of her concerns were my mother's concerns or my grandmother's concerns. And, you know, that's something that just felt very natural to me to kind of like to gravitate towards. And I also just thought it would just make, you know, um, just make for a, a more interesting and a more compelling story. You know, the idea that, you know, here is a woman who essentially uh, is, as you said, like literally the walls are closing in on her metaphorically and literally. How is she going to like piece this together? Who's going to believe her? Herself a woman of color. Who's going to consider her fears, her anxieties credible? What is she going to do, you know, for help, for guidance? That I think was something I was also interested in as well. All right. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk to you about uh, a big piece of your writerly education. We already mm-hmm. mentioned that you went to Stanford and then went on to get your MFA at Irvine. Mm-hmm. But you also moved east to New York and mm-hmm. worked, I believe, at Grove. Yeah, as I did an, work at Grove. As a, a nonfiction editor for a decade. I was there a few years. I was there. I was there a few years, and uh, you know the experiences I had working at Grove with the authors. You know there were, yeah. It was, it was, it was another form of education, if that makes any sense. It was another way of learning how to construct a narrative. There's nothing quite as compelling as like having to communicate to another writer 
who is incredibly capable, who knows what they're doing, who is maybe lost or maybe kind of like, you know, can't really kind of figure their way out to be able to articulate to them, hey, I see the narrative. I see the arc. Let's try it this way. Let's do it this way. It was incredibly yeah. educational. I bet. I bet. Because it forces your hand. It forces you to look at the thing from a, you know, a different angle, a different perspective. And it makes me think that like the entire publishing industry would be well served if there was a more holistic education somehow for all of us. Like if, for example, every editor had to write a book, <laughs> uh, every writer, I think everybody who works in publishing on the publishing side or on the writing side would be well served to have worked in a bookstore, you know, to have spent like a year Absolutely. as a, a bookseller Absolutely. interacting with customers at the ground level. That would be incredibly instructive, I would have to believe. And to have been, even if you're not going to be like a marketing person or a publicity person, if you're working inside of a publishing house, you have proximity to those people and to those processes. And so to spend several years doing that has to be useful to you now, even in ways that you might not fully understand. It could be something subconscious, you know, that's working on you when you're making creative choices in your work, right? I mean, am I barking up the right tree? No, yeah, yeah. I think I think you're I think you're right on the money, and uh, I I think that you know the goal. Uh, you know, whenever I look at a page, whether it's a blank page of mine or you know a student that I'm working with, it's always with the goal of what story uh, is the writer, whether it's me or somebody else. What story are they trying to tell, and what is the best and most effective way that that person can tell that story and you know and sometimes it's like oh like throwing out pages or sometimes it's like you know just knocking out the opening and like you know giving yourself that like that latitude and that freedom to say that like all possible outcomes all possible ideas are on the table in order to get to where the story wants us to go and i think that for me you know always understanding that like even as a writer Right. Even as somebody, you know, who spends, you know, way longer on books than I would, you know, six and a half years. I wish I could write faster. I wish I could publish faster. But to me, it's always about what does the story want? What does the story want? You know, what, what story wants to be told? What, where, where, where essentially is the crux of, you know, your, uh, your, your main character's goal or desire, right? Like, uh, I guess I'm I'm trying to think of like something pithy to like sum this up and like everything is escaping me at the moment. But, you know, the thing that I like I come back to uh, time and again is, you know, when you're writing a book, you're writing a short story or, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, there's somebody on the other side. There is a reader. What if you had that one sentence, if you have that one line, what do you want their takeaway to be? And if you can focus on that, if you can focus on the takeaway, what's the takeaway here? Right. Because I feel that happens all the time where like a writer uh, will say, oh, I want this, this and this. And it's nowhere on the page. And I'm like, well, just put it on the page. And that's again, that was advice I had to take for myself as well. It's like, if you could just remember, you know, focus on the takeaway and make sure it finds its way to the page. You might be able to have uh, hopefully a more joyful experience creating, writing and revising 
And the reader will be happier, most likely, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. The reader will feel satisfied. I spent 28 bucks for this. I got my money's worth. There you go. Well, I always ask people before uh, we part company if they're working on anything new. Like, I know we're just putting this book out into the world, so it's fine if you don't have anything going, but usually writers have irons in the fire. Is there another book in the works? Yeah, I think so. I think that there are uh, a couple of books that I, neither of which I want to spend six and a half years working on. So hopefully it'll happen a little more quickly. One of them I think will be, will require me to go to Spain. So uh, next year, I think sometime maybe in the spring, I'll be in Spain for a couple of months doing some research. And uh, the other book maybe might be a little more closer, closer to home. But uh, yeah, this we'll is see. fiction. It's fiction. Yeah, they're both fiction. They're both fiction. I really do enjoy writing nonfiction as well. But I felt like, you know, since I literally put all of those great nonfiction stories that I told you in one book, as opposed to <laughs> spreading them all out, right, maybe right. quite foolish in re- retrospect, no. uh, I don't I don't have uh, a volume two on tap yet. So yeah, I think I'm going to stick with uh, with novels for the foreseeable future. All right. Well, Brando, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on My Name is Iris and best of luck in Spain and with whatever comes next. Thank you so much, Brad. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. Okay, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Brando Skyhorse. His new novel is called My Name is Iris. Out there now, wherever books are sold from Avid Reader Press, you can find him on the internet at brandoskyhorse.com. One more time, the book is called My Name is Iris. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you want to, you can join the Other People Patreon community. Help keep this thing rolling into the future. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get another People t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Don't forget to subscribe to my free once-a-week email newsletter. You can subscribe at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you want to do me a quick favor, I would really appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating, write a review if that's an option. It helps the show in the algorithm, helps it in the rankings, helps it find new listeners. If you have feedback for me, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. And finally, a plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I will read it to you if you want. It's a book, it's mine. You can read it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up next on The Other People Show on Friday, there will be another flashback episode where I dig into the archives and share an outtake from a good episode from years past. And then coming up on Sunday, it's TBD again. I'm still deciding, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. All right? Stay tuned. Stay tuned.